comes another edition of Talking Foostball Direct, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman. This week, we're feeling lucky. Boy, did the stars ever align to keep things tight at the top of the table. A three-way tie has broken out. With me this week to untangle things is Marie Schultebockum. How do you like this 43-point three-way? I love it. You know, I kept reading everywhere that this is the first time it's happened since the mid-90s. And uh, yeah, what a season. And we still have a lot of those ties coming up of those that trio of clubs, Dortmund, Bayern, and on in Berlin, there are still a lot of uh, those games where they face each other, including this upcoming weekend, of course, Bayern Munich hosts Union Berlin in Munich. So, yeah, keeping the suspense high. I dig it. I dig it. We're going to be right back with the best and the rest of Match Day 21. But, you know, in the meantime, please do subscribe to the pod. Please leave us a five-star rating. It's a big help to get the word out to new listeners. And if you really like us become a supporter on Patreon. You can listen to lots of timeless content over there, including the historic Match Day Moments series, which is ongoing. It really helps us keep the show going when you give us a little bit of money. All right, here comes part one of Talking Foosball Direct. This is the part where we talk about the best of the match day just gone. This was match day 21, and it was another week, another riveting chapter in the Bundesliga title race. FC Bayern München kicked things off on Saturday with a tried and true classic, a loss in München Gladbach. Union Berlin thickened the plot by dropping points at home to FC Schalke 04 in the early game on Sunday, after which Borussia Dortmund overpowered Hertha BSA at the Westfalenstadion. You put all those results together, and what do you get? Three teams on 43 points after 21 match days. You mentioned it in the intro, Marie. This is the first time since the mid-90s when the three points for a win era came into the Bundesliga. Marie, I I think we should probably start with the game that sort of kicked off this game of dominoes. The league leaders, they they are still league leaders. We don't want to oversell this. They have a a major, major advantage on goal difference, FC Bayern mentioned. They were coming off what I saw as a pretty steady performance in Paris, despite the, eh, you know, the last 15 or 20 minutes being a bit squeaky. They were anything but steady in this game. I mean, Dayan Opamakano got himself sent off inside of 10 minutes. That gave the Foles the opening that they needed to really go at Bayern and play them toe-to-toe as opposed to being a bit circumspect. And I think maybe it's pretty hard for us to talk about this game in anything other than that context of the sending off early in the game. Changed the run of the game, certainly changed Julian Nagelsmann's mood during and after the game, cursing the referees. Maybe he was just, you know, shifting blame. Maybe he had a point. Where do you put this game into context? I think this is the game where Julian Nagelsmann really lost his cool. And in a way, a lot of the pressure that has been on his very young shoulders. He's still just 35 years old. He kind of cracked. And it's a shame if we're talking about him and his profile in German football, because of course he had come out of the previous weeks strengthened. Bayern won in Paris against a team that included all their stars, you know, against expectations. No one really thought Mbappé and Messi would both play, but they did. At least, of course, Mbappé came on at halftime. 
And um, that was huge on the European stage and probably also huge for Nagelsmann's standing with the higher ups at the club and the players alike. And of course, he came out with the whole Manuel Neuer saga, a very public dirt throwing debate with the captain of the club kind of as the winner, for lack of a better word. And so, you know, and Bayern was still, as you said, top of the table. And everyone knew that Bayern messes up against Gladbach frequently, but somehow that wasn't enough to prevent this debacle of a game. And I think in the scene in the eighth minute, Upamecano had to play the foul. And I do think it was a foul. Of course, it wasn't a vicious foul. He he didn't hit, it was Alessandro Plea. You know, he didn't hit the, the striker's lower body. Um, so it's not like he you know, completely took him off his feet, but there was enough contact at the arms and the shoulders for a player to trip. And to me, that that's a clear foul. You know, both of the players were in a complete sprint going towards goal. Upamecano was the last man standing. And in the rule book, it doesn't get clearer than that. You know, if, if it's in Germany, it's called a Notbremse. So kind of like a emergency break. You know, you're the last defender on the pitch before the striker has a clean shot at goal, then that's a red card. And then it doesn't matter if it was a severe foul or if it was a little foul and if it's the eighth minute or the 88th minute. So to me, I, I don't really understand how this was such a huge debate. Maybe there's a little bit of Bayern bonus going on, but in, in German society, this was a huge debate uh, whether this was even a red card. And I'm like, you know, the rules are pretty clear. This is a red card, period. And then the way that Nagelsmann freaked out at the sideline, you see that a lot. You know, I, I certainly saw that with my own eyes this weekend from many, many a coach in the stadium. And it's kind of become part of the culture of modern day football. And this is perhaps also why yellow and red cards for coaches were even introduced a few years ago. But the verbal attack at halftime, I think... You know, apparently Nagelsmann called the referees plural, so he didn't attack the referee of this game kind of one-on-one, -on -one, but he said, you guys are like a soft pack or Weichgespielt, so it's kind of like, you know, it's basically calling referees soft. Yeah, I thought this was a really strange locution, by the way. Yes. Weichgespielt is pack. Yeah, and also like in, in the German media, again, this is, I think a lot of this was just, way blown out of proportion everyone was like this is such a harsh insult and i'm like what <laughs> like this yeah. is this isn't even a swear word <laughs> and it, it's funny that this happened well it's not funny at all but it's coincidental that this happened now because two weeks ago i was at a coaching seminar in allianz arena with lutz fröhlich and felix brich so lutz fröhlich is the head of the german referees uh, and who today said that this was completely you know, scandalous what Nagelsmann said. And Felix Brüch, of course, is one of the most successful German coaches of the, the past decade. And even then, you could really sense that there are these two narratives where I think all of football in Germany says, oh, the video assistant referee has gone too far. Referee decisions take too long. And why is the game not improving in terms of refereeing. And then the referees, at least the way that they voice itself to the media, they kind of see themselves as like fallen soldiers and heroes. And that really surprised me that they see themselves as, you know, like the punching bags that get treated unfairly. And that they had a training camp in Portugal early in the winter break where they kind of said that 
for complaining, yellow cards would be given much sooner, which is certainly already happening. We've seen that a bunch of times, even this match day. But it's just, this scene, I think, yeah, it was a red card. It wasn't a vicious foul and it was early on in an important game. So of course that's worth debating. And Nagelsmann got angry. Yeah, it's Julian Nagelsmann. We all know him. He's a very emotional and rhetorically adept and precise dude. You know, he likes to voice his opinion and he's certainly good at that. And that's it to me. Like, But then yesterday evening, it was announced that the DFB, the German footballing body and the league is starting an investigation into what he said. And it just, I just think it's ridiculous. And even the, the referee himself said, Apparently he didn't hear what was said during halftime. And now that he reads about the comments, he doesn't feel personally attacked and that he thinks Nagelsmann was talking about the referees in general and that the next time he gets a Bayern game, he would shake Nagelsmann's hand. So I think that's kind of where it should end, in my opinion. Yeah, it sounds to me, for the most part, as just a case of a big thing happening in a big game featuring Germany's biggest team. And most of the media blowing it up as big as they can. I mean, it seems pretty open and shut to me as well. Like, if you make a last man foul, even if it's not a harsh foul, you know, you're going to get sent off. You should be. Yeah. Even if it's the eighth minute. So I feel like this is much of a muchness. Unfortunately, that might turn into a, a suspension for Yulia Nagelsmann because, you know, they might want to be s sort of set a standard for this sort of behavior, the refereeing body. But Come on, folks. Can we talk a little bit about the rest of, of the action on the pitch? I mean, despite the fact that Gladbach were up, you know, 11 men to 10 for basically 82 minutes of this game, it was not a runaway win for them, but they did hold on for the win. I mean, using this game as an example might be a little tricky considering some of the stuff surrounding it, but Gladbach have such a history of hurting Bayern in the league, in the cup. And doing it just seemingly at least once every year, if not a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. What are they doing in terms of their approach or in terms of their execution that just Bayern can't handle? I wish I could tell you, but they surprised me. I mean, as little as a week ago, us two on this podcast discussed Gladbach and said they're, you know, our Sorgenkind. Mm -hmm. You know, we're worried about this child of the Bundesliga because they're still am. such poor form. And yet they decide to come back strong against Bayern Munich. I mean, fair enough, but a lot was against them, said against them. You know, they lost their talisman of, of many years, their goalkeeper, Jan Sommer. And for his first return to, to Gladbach's home grounds, I actually thought that was very classy, how he was, you know, welcomed back with open arms and with banners and songs by the Gladbach home support fans. I, I think that is unique. We've certainly seen many an example where that hasn't been the case in the past. I mean, just imagine, for example, more than 10 years ago, if Schalke's fans would have warmly applauded for Manuel Neuer. That was exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of, the, the kind of reception he got <laughs> when he went back yeah, to Schalke the first time. Exactly. And I mean, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that's a, you know, a clean comparison because of course Neuer has a history as a Schalke ultra and it came from the club's academy, but in terms of importance for the first team, you can definitely draw the comparison between Jan Sommer and Gladbach and Manuel Neuer at Schalke. And, and so I thought that was really beautiful to watch and kudos to Gladbach for doing that, um, especially because the fans, of course, recently 
have also been attacked on other charges with how they treated Max Eberl, etc. So th- I think that was worth mentioning. And then Gladbach, I don't know. I think Lars Stindl is just on blistering form and is kind of having his fourth spring of his of his career. He's still captain. He's quite old now. He always gets written off and people say, oh, Christoph Kramer is going to play number 10. Alassane Plea, when he's fit, is going to play number 10. And yet here is Lars Stindl still getting starts and still scoring. And he's kind of been Gladbach's man of 2023 20, so far. And it's surprising. I don't know what Daniel Farke told them, the coach, but in this game, they played like a team that was on a winning streak and not a losing streak. And they were efficient and... I think they were deserved winners. Yeah, for sure. Thinking ahead a little bit, you brought it up in the intro, or perhaps the the beginning of this segment, who knows? Bayern are preparing to host Union next week. That's uh, certainly a big game, considering all the title race implications. Union, they have a midweek fixture against Ajax at home to Ajax after having, you know, earned themselves a a nil-nil draw in Amsterdam. Bayern are off for the week in terms of, you know, competitive matches. What are you looking forward to most in that game? The game against Ajax or the Bayern Union? Um, oh, the Bayern game. We'll, we'll, we'll get to, we'll, <laughs> we might touch on that next thing, but, but we're talking about Bayern and Union. Yeah, I think I'm looking forward to Union Berlin in maximum focus mode and in competitive mode because I watched the whole 90 minutes of Union versus Schalke yesterday and I did not get that impression. I was surprised that Urs Fischer started with Jordan, Sibacheo and, and Geraldo Becker on the bench. Really surprised because I think when you have the chance to overtake Bayern and be first in the Bundesliga, most clubs in Union Berlin's position would see that as a bigger deal than a Europa League game. And yet it kind of seemed like Urs Fischer was giving his best players a break in anticipation of the Ajax game or the Bayern game. And I thought that was a little cocky, I have to be honest, because Schalke had not conceded a goal in three games in a row, now four. And then to rest your best strikers, you know, you can say Kevin Behrens is currently the most in form. And, you know, that's worth mentioning in terms of goal scoring. But Geraldo Becker and, and Jordan Sibachu, I think, have, you know, a higher quality overall, on paper at least. And it did not pay off. And I think it was kind of frustrating for a neutral Bundesliga fan to watch that game because Union never really, you know, switched into fifth gear. It seems like they were kind of coasting along and happy to let Schalke come at them. And it was a terrible game. You know, it was probably the worst Bundesliga game I've seen in a long time because both of these teams did not want to control the game. And this, again, was one of those games where I'm like, how is Union Berlin so high up? Because they, I think Laiduni, we talked about him before. I think he's a very, very high quality player. And he certainly sees the game in in this particular match as well. But besides him, there was no standout performer in this game. And it may be because some of the best players were rested. I don't know. But I thought overall a very disappointing 0-0, at least from Union's perspective, and so going into the Bayern game, I think we'll see a different Union Berlin, both in terms of the starting lineup, was Fischer is, you know, famous for rotating players and surprising the opposition with who he'll start. I actually wrote an article for Forbes about this this week, about how that's such a strength of Union Berlin, because how can you prepare for playing them if you don't know about which one-on-one duels you're going to face? 
And maybe he does really like the idea of the Europa League. We saw what Eintracht Frankfurt did with that competition in the past. And so maybe he's playing his best team against Ajax. They're certainly in a good position there after the nil-nil in Amsterdam. So who knows? I think it will be a different performance against Bayern. I don't think it will be a blowout win for Bayern just because Union is defensively too strong, in my opinion, for that to happen. But we have to remember that Union Berlin is very, very stable when they play at home. And away from home, it can often be another story. So if I had to predict the scoreline today, I would say Bayern is going to win this game. But I think it will be something like a 2-0 or or a 2-1. I don't think it will be Bayern announcing that they're the number one in Germany with like a 5-0 blowout or anything. Yeah, I mean, Union's gotten blown out basically one time this season, if I'm not mistaken. But I, I, I too think their chances are, are pretty poor at the Allianz, considering not only the rotation issues that you talked about, um, that being somewhat typical of Union, but the results against Schalke in that first half, especially before they decided to bring in the likes of Becker and Jordan. Yeah, they looked really, really bad. And maybe though, maybe... <laughs> Maybe we're underselling Schalke a little bit here. I, I know that you know it's been a string of nil-nil results. It's been uh, pretty well in, in Germany. You would say Teus Fleisch a lot of these games. It's been tough meat, real, real chewy, stringy, uh, hard to hard to digest. Yeah. But stringing together nil-nil draws. You can do a lot worse as a team at the bottom of the table. You know, they're picking up a point a week. Yep. That's not necessarily going to be quite enough for them, but it's a whole lot better than losing. Can I draw you out a little bit on Schalke and their sort of their new modus operandi? Is there any sort of fundamental change in approach? Can we praise anything other than hard work with this team? Yeah, I think there's plenty to praise. And this goes back to I never tire of making this point for me. I love this league. I've followed this league since I was young. And to me, this is the most competitive Bundesliga we've seen in probably a decade, to Mm -hmm. be honest. And I don't just mean at the top. I mean, all levels. Schalke, in any other season, would not be 18th with the type of players that they have. You know, they have good players. Maybe not, you know, maybe they would be in a relegation battle any other year, but not dead last. They've got Rodrigo Salazar, Simon Terodde, they have Alex Kral, who played Champions League until last summer. Tom Kraus, for me, one of the most underrated talents in Germany, a really, really talented central midfielder. And I think if he keeps up his form, he'll get a chance at his parent club, RB Leipzig, in the summer. And they had a beautiful winter transfer window where they signed seven guys. And of those, four or five are starting every game. I think Jens is worth mentioning here. The central defender who's really stabilized defense and seems to, you know, pair up very well with Yoshida. And Uronen, the Finnish right back, we talked about him before. I think he's doing very well. Unfortunately, he left the game injured. So we'll have to see what's going on there. But there's now a level of competition in this squad that has forced players like Alvian or Moa onto the bench. And Aydin as well, who had a lot more playing time in the first half of the season from Schalke's Academy. And of course, also the goalkeeper. I mean, since Ralf Fehrmann came on, and I don't know if it's a coincidence or if it's his Schalke identity and his height, but his 
presence and goal and in these games just gives so much to this team. I, I don't think he's necessarily as a shot stopper better than what they had before, but he certainly gives something to this team that's improved them. And I think a lot of those things, what they have in common is the coach, Thomas Reis, who's really added quality to the side uh, tactically. And they just look a lot more compact, a lot more in shape. And the the one thing that they still cannot do is score goals, at least not onside goals. Of course, there are two great goals last weekend against Wolfsburg, both of which were disallowed. But I would say don't count out Schalke. It's it's a you know it's a very steep hill for them to climb, given their troubles in attack. Because how are you going to win games and get three points if you don't score? But we all know that championships at the bottom and at the top are decided in defense. And with four clean sheets in a row, which, by the way, is unmatched in any of the top European leagues by any team, <laughs> who, who knows where this might lead? I think a lot will depend on Bochum and Stuttgart and Hoffenheim and those other teams. I, I think it's no longer really in Schalke's own hands. It just depends if one of those other clubs has a really poor spell of results that might give Schalke the opportunity to, you know, climb out of the dugout, so to speak. Yeah, I totally agree that this is a very competitive Bundesliga. And in opposition to the last several years of this league, there's been generally one or two absolutely hopeless teams in the league. And you just don't have any this year. It feels really different. I mean, Schalke, now that they have sort of arisen from their slumber, at least defensively, I think that the remainder of this season is going to be uh, electric all over. Let's talk about the third part of this title race trilogy. That was Beifau Bay getting back into you know a tie for first place, at least on points. They played their part for to perfection. They took down Hertha 4-1 at home. Yeah, the run of play in this game was a good deal closer than that score would suggest, but the individual quality on show... <laughs> from each side was not close. Dortmund's eighth straight win across all competitions there. Karim Adeyemi, huge impact in that first half. He scored one and set up another, but maybe out for a little bit with either uh, meniscus or hamstring or some sort of thigh, knee, what have you issue. In that he was the hero at midweek. He was the hero in the first half of this game. What's your take on sort of how big a miss that might be in the coming weeks? You know, I really feel for him because whatever he did in the winter break and after the World Cup, and in my opinion, on performances alone, let's leave talent out of it, but on performances alone, he didn't deserve to go to the World Cup in the Germany squad. And he didn't get any minutes apart from, I think, the very first game against Japan. Maybe he was subbed on, but maybe I'm misremembering that too. But he didn't play any important role in Hansi Flick's squad. And he hadn't scored a goal in the Bundesliga for Dortmund until 2023. And how this guy has turned it around, you know, we're finally seeing the Adeyemi that we saw in Salzburg, the Adeyemi that everyone in Europe knows from the Champions League, the speed, the cheek, the technique. Sorry, I'm just like on a little rhyming flow there. <laughs> but he's he's just fun to watch and he looks happy and he's relaxed in interviews and he seems very well liked in the squad, which seem you know might sound trivial, but those things matter, especially to young players. And it's just such a shame that this is you know it's like someone pulled the plug when the electricity of Karim Adeyemi is really flowing. And I hope 
he comes back. So I, I, I'm sad for him. I don't think it will shake up Dortmund that much just because there are other players who are in really good form and the competition is so high. And I think I said this last week, but with the return of Marco Reus and Sebastian Alea, you have two absolute leaders with incredible European experience. And even when Terzic benches them for training performance reasons or tactical reasons, as we saw against Chelsea when Reus didn't play and was very upset by this, but even when that happens, you have Reus, you know, for, for those moments to come on or to score a beautiful free kick goal against Hertha at an opportune moment. Because I agree with you, this wasn't a 4-1 game. This was Dortmund's efficiency and class that they were missing and bringing home those results. And Hertha did very well in many parts of the game and probably deserved to score one or two more in the first half. But yeah, I don't think Adeyemi's loss will break Dortmund's streak. I think others will step up, like Gio Reyna. Of course, we've seen Bino Gittens. He's on incredible form, Julian Brandt. And there's so many talented attacking players that Terzic can now also try some things up front. You know, he can shift things around, maybe play with Modest um, and have Alea come more on the wings or play with Royce in the middle up front. Uh, Mukoku, of course, is also still injured. But th- there are so many options that he has at his disposal that I think it's a shame for Adeyemi, but for Dortmund, they will survive. Yeah. You know, two things came to mind from what you just said there. I mean, the thing you said about Adeyemi being really well-liked, I noticed last week in the tunnel prior to the game against Bremen, how excited Nicholas Fulkrug and Adeyemi seemed to be at seeing each other. Like, clearly, <laughs> the, this is a guy who, like, even even the opposition, who might have spent, you know, a good three weeks in uh, Qatar, or where were they? They were actually in, were they in Oman, their camp or something like that? I think they were, yeah, in, in Oman at the beginning, and then their camp was, yeah, it was really remote. It might it might very well have been on the border to Oman. Yeah, it was way up yeah. north. Yeah. But they'd spent enough time together where he was psyched to see Adiemi. <laughs> so clearly, th- this is a guy who has a bit of a magnetism to him. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, it's worth, it's worth adding with this that Adiemi, of course, comes out of Bayern's youth system mm. and was kind of you know, dishonorably discharged as a teenager because he was seen as more travel than he's worth. And when you watch these YouTube videos by the clubs, uh, you know, there a lot of clubs do YouTube videos kind of for a Gen Z audience when they have the the players answer quizzes or guess what German words mean. And Salzburg did a lot of that with Adeyemi because he was such a supporter's favorite but he he has a really childlike, joyful quality to him, very boyish. And sometimes that can come across as not serious, you know, similar to sometimes how Leroy Sané is portrayed. But, you know, maybe that was his Achilles heel at Bayern. But since that time where he left Bayern and went, I think, to uh, by way of Unterhaching, he then kind of climbed back into the scouting notebooks of everyone in Europe and ended up at Salzburg. But since that time, I think he has this chip on his shoulder where he wants to prove himself to Germany's footballing elite. And it's good that he's doing that. And it's it's, it's interesting you say that he met Fulkrug because I don't know if you saw this, but when the World Cup squad was announced, one of Fulkrug's Werder Bremen teammates kind of filmed the live TV announcement from the changing rooms when they almost like a slideshow blurred in all the players that were nominated, kind of going from goalkeepers all the way forward. And when 
and they announced Adeyemi before Fulkrug, because of course he's more of a winger than a number nine. And a lot of the players audibly were like, what, him? <laughs> and it was very embarrassing to Fulkrug and to Bremen because this was on Instagram. So everyone was there for everyone to see that Adeyemi didn't have the respect of his Bundesliga opponents at that moment in time. But it, it seems like the script has been flipped in that regard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, I agree that uh, Dortmund, despite the fact that this is certainly a big personal disappointment for Adeyemi, and, you know, when you take a player with that much skill and that much speed out of a lineup, you are you are going to be missing something. But, yeah, Dortmund, not short on individual quality. I mean, in the game against Hertha this weekend, I mean, I, I felt Hertha were at least as close to a 2-2 as, as uh, Dortmund were to a 3-1 in that second half. Yeah. And when Royce got that free kick goal, it was like all over. Okay, looking ahead, you know, Union and Bayern are going to be playing each other next weekend, whereas Dortmund, they've got a trip to Hoffenheim, which at the moment is a lot easier. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Hoffenheim after a short break, because I hear you got to watch them up close. All right, here comes part two of Talking Foosball Direct, uh, the part where we talk about the rest of the match day just gone. This was match day 21. I'm Matt Herman. My guest is Marie Schulte-Bockham. Let's start with a big result for the struggling Stuttgart. In, in one of the two games you reported from this weekend, Bruno Labadia and co. got their first win since match day 14 in the pre-Bruno era, dropping FC Köln on Carnival Sunday, no less. What do you think gave Stuttgart such a big edge in this game? Yeah, it's a good question because I, I didn't expect this result, certainly not with that heavier scoreline. I often find that when you're in a stadium, I think I think there are definitely two sides to this debate. A lot of people say that in soccer, at least, you see a lot more when in front of TV because you can zoom in on players and watch repeats, etc., I actually would say I disagree that because in the stadium, when you have the whole pitch in front of you, you're not dependent on the camera's direction. You can really see how every player moves. And to me, this was one of those games where really one player stuck out. And for me, on Stuttgart's side, that was Bona Sosa, the Croatian left back. And I was lucky I, I got him in front of the microphone for the Bundesliga's international footage after the game. And... Of course, he was in a fantastic mood, having scored a beautiful free kick for the 2-0 in the second half. But one of the most interesting answers that he gave me, I asked him about Sehu Girassi's absence, because Girassi had pretty much scored a goal a game since November for Stuttgart, and then has been out injured for the last two or three games and probably won't return until late March or April. And in this game, he was really celebrated by the fans. Before the game, he kind of gave an interview and then he was walking around the stadium, shaking hands. So he's very well-liked at Stuttgart, Girassi, I mean. And I asked Sosa how it's different without Girassi because you don't have your target man, your classic number nine. And in this particular game, Stuttgart played with Silas up front, who is not really a number nine. He's more of a playmaker or sometimes a winger. Mm -hmm. Similar in a way, maybe to, I mean, very different playing style, but positionally, I would say 
You can compare him to Antoine Griezmann, like very much a second striker or someone who kind of floats behind the number nine. But Bruno Labbadia told me after the game that he really wanted Silas to create that depth and pull defenders away from the others because Silas is a very good sprinter. He's good at holding the ball, controlling the ball. So this really worked. You know, I think Labbadia didn't expect Silas to be Girassi and score the goals, but he played his part. And Sosa told me that without Girassi, he himself had changed his playing style. And Sosa is famous in the Bundesliga for his crosses. But why cross the ball and high when you don't have someone to nick it into the back of the net? And so you saw this in this game that Sosa frequently pulled in to the middle. And then instead of high crosses, he would pass it, try to find Diaz, who of course scored the 1-0, try to find Silas, try to find Führich or the other guys. And it worked really, really well. And I think Stuttgart just looked very confident in this game from the beginning, like they had a plan. And Jonas Hector, the Cologne captain, after the game was really mad. He was in a bit of a mood. And I I kind of asked him what went wrong. And, and he said, well, the other team scored three and we didn't score any. <laughs> you know, it was that, that kind of afternoon. But I mean, you know, you can't blame him. Um, it, it was a tough... He also almost scored in the second half of a really good shot. But it's tough for Cologne because they had such incredible support from the fans. The Cologne fans had all been traveled from you know, that must have been like a three-hour train ride and all in costumes. And on the way to the stadium, it looked like a Cologne home game. In the stadium, then I was kind of surprised that the Cologne fans were a lot quieter than I would have expected. This game was very firmly in the hands of the Kanstatter Kurve, the Stuttgart faithful. But it might have been because Stuttgart scored in the ninth minute and then never really gave up control of the game. So in many ways, this game went differently than I would have expected. You were also at uh, Augsburg's win at home to Hoffenheim, and unlike Stuttgart, or I guess perhaps like Stuttgart, in that it took it took a while for their coaching change to kick in uh, in terms of a win. That is happening at TSG as well. Since installing Pellegrino Matarazzo, not a lot of success. Did they look any better? I mean, this was a one nil result, so I can't say that this was um, you know the kind of of definitive result that you know Stuttgart were able to earn against. Cologne, but what did you make of Hoffenheim in this game? Yeah, it's kind of sad to see because Hoffenheim has such a strong ball-playing roster at their disposal. The squad is really strong. There are players who want to have the ball, want to have possession, want to carry the ball, pass the ball, cross the ball, and they are just not playing like that at all. They look completely in shock, and I think this is a squad that was not assembled to you know, face relegation. I think sometimes they lack the grit or the courage for the situation that they're in. They played with a back three of, including Kevin Vogt this time, who seems to be back uh, for good. And then, of course, controversially, early in the second half, there was that goal, the supposed Augsburg goal by uh, set up by Yeboa and finished, I think it was... Demirovic, who finished this, but then it was pulled back because supposedly Yeboa, who in my opinion was kind of like stuck between two very physical Hoffenheim defenders and somehow made the most of it and played the pass, it was then claimed up by the VAR that he had committed a foul on Forbes because he 
kind of reached out his hand to stabilize himself and prevent himself from falling. And then with his flattened hand, with the inside of his hand uh, kind of stretched out, he hit Kevin Fogt in the face. But it was not at all intentional. He didn't see that Fogt was there because he was looking at his teammate and at the ball. And then this, to me, again, it kind of was a really bizarre situation because Kevin Fogt really absolutely made the most of this. He like, you know, was on the on the floor and everyone was like, oh, it's a head injury. And to me, this is one of those situations. If you've played any other team sport than football, I, I played field hockey growing up. You're just outraged by like this culture of pretense. And to me, this isn't an injury. Yeah, it's painful to get a, you know, to get a hand against your nose that hurts, but it's not a hit, head injury, you know? And then the, I think this was very much karma towards folk. Then the Augsburg coach said, no, you're not going back on because you have a head injury. <laughs> and Vogt and the coach and Madrazo were absolutely furious. They were like, we need him. And I'm like, well, then don't pretend that you're dying. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. it, it's good that there's now a protocol that takes head injuries very seriously. That's wonderful and super important with concussions and what we saw see in other sports like American football. But yeah, I'm sorry. If you're going to abuse the situation to avoid a goal against you, and pretend that, I don't know, you're not stable anymore, then don't take your shirt off and kick water bottles when you're not allowed back on the pitch. And it was, the uh, ironic thing was that it was it was the uh, Hoffenheim doc who did not want Kevin Falk back on the pitch and had privately communicated that with the referee without checking in with Hoffenheim's coach. So yeah, sorry, that's a, a long story short, but this was very much the kind of theme of the evening, that scene. And then... Matarazzo after the game told me that that was when everything changed because Vogt had often created, had kind of been a playmaker from the back and had open play from the back. And then when he left the game and Nsoki came on to replace him, Matarazzo said it turned more into a fight, a kind of relegation battle. And that suited Augsburg more than it suited Hoffenheim. Hmm. Any other comments from Matarazzo or in, indeed from Enrico Masson? I understand that uh, those were the two folks you got a chance to talk to. Yeah, Enrico Masson was obviously very happy with his team. Augsburg have kind of made a very own tradition of winning 1-0 on Friday nights under the floodlights at home. And Berisha scoring that goal, that's happened more than twice this season. And they just... It's incredible how fast they integrated their new guys. They signed eight players this winter window. And Anne Engels, uh, a 19-year-old who came from the Belgian League and was seen very much as a signing for the future, has established himself as a firm starter. Then, of course, there's Yeboa, who also started this game because apparently he did very well in training. And their Portuguese left-back, Viega, he was actually taken out, you know, in, in the interview, Enrico Maasen singled him out for a big compliment and said that he did a very good job. And yeah, so he was very happy with his team and with the young guys. And I asked him whether, you know, Augsburg is now out of the danger zone with how many points they were able to acquire recently. And he kind of like dodged the question a little bit, but his face was saying, yes, <laughs> we are out of the danger zone. So that's interesting. That's also a perk of sometimes TV interviews over print interviews that you have 
people's face expressions and gestures alongside what they say. And of course, their intonation, it's not just black and white on paper. But yeah, no, that was, he was obviously in a very good mood, Enrico Massen. And Pellegrino Materazzo, yeah, he was, he was sad, but he says he's working hard with his team. And he, I think somewhat bravely, trusted a lot of the homegrown talent in this game. You know, Tohumchu, an 18-year-old, was in the starting lineup. Tom Bischoff, a very, very promising young player, also 18, came on in the second half and almost scored an absolute cracker from distance. And why not? You know, those players perhaps have less riding on the current situation than the older guys, um, less worries. And maybe that's the way to go. And he said, you know, it's, it's a bit of a platitude, but he said to him, there's no such thing as old and young players. There are only good and bad players. <laughs> but yeah, I think we'll see more from Hoffenheim. And you said that, of course, they're going to the traveling to Dortmund next weekend. We got to remember that Hoffenheim for Dortmund is kind of what Gladbach is for Bayern. You know, Hoffenheim <laughs> yeah, sure, in the sure. past decade, five or 10 years, well, as long as Hoffenheim has really been in this league, has often been a stumbling block for Dortmund. And who knows? Maybe this will be the game where they come back swinging. I doubt it, but uh, never say never. Did you get a chance to let uh, Pellegrino know that you're a fellow Columbia graduate? I did. <laughs> Excellent. That's so funny that you mentioned that. Yeah, I I thought it might, you know, ease him up a little bit because it can be a bit like put yourself in the shoes of these players or coaches. You know, I said what what mood Jonas Hector was in when you lose a game away from home and you had a plan that didn't work out and you concede goals and you're tra- you have to go into the the traveling fans and they're gutted, you're gutted. And then some media person from your club pulls you and says, now stand here in front of this advertising wall and explain yourself to a journalist. Like, it's not really what they want to do, but it's obviously a good thing that they do because it's those interviews often reveal a lot about the state of the team. And Matarazzo, he was very composed. And I, I wanted to ask, kind of break the ice before the interview. And so I introduced myself and said that I also went to Columbia and I I read an interview, I think it was an El Freunde or something a few years ago, where he said that he lived near Harlem in the 90s and that it was still a very different city then, a lot of crime, a lot of shootings. And so I briefly asked him about that. And then he was like, no, I lived on East Campus. So now I guess I have to look up what East Campus is. (laughs) But we, we kind of bonded over that. And yeah, he's a really pleasant person to talk to, eloquent, kind of maintains eye contact. And that's something that I kind of ex- experienced with everyone. Baumgart, I was a little scared of because, of course, he can be very emotional, but he was super relaxed, the Cologne coach, and kind of bantering along even after losing like 3 0. And Bonasosa was very happy, of course. And no, it was, it was a fantastic experience for me. And I still have. So much to learn. It's very different. Also interviewing on camera. You, I, I'm someone who gestures a lot and kind of often speaks with body language, but you can't do that very much because you're holding the microphone into your face and then, then the players or the coach's face. So if you pull the microphone, you know, it's like the audio is in and out and you have to stand a certain angle so that the player stands equally and then the camera shows the player's face and not just the profile, but this is what I always wanted to do since I was little. And I just had such a great time this weekend and I can't wait to to get back out there into the stadium and stand on the pitch and, and see the players and talk to the coaches and really be up close. 
Spectacular. I'm so happy for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, we got a few more games to look at, uh, a few more storylines. We've got a couple of teams from the Bundesliga who are going to be playing Champions League this week. First up, we'll talk about Eintracht Frankfurt. They have uh, a Napoli, a home match against Napoli on Tuesday. They got, I don't know, pretty pretty workmanlike win over Werder Bremen. How do you like what you see from them at the moment, either in this game or looking ahead towards their game against Napoli, who, you know, they're one of Europe's hotter teams leading Serie A. I think they've won their last four or five games or something like that. Yeah. So this is not going to be easy. Yeah, I would say, you know, count out Frankfurt at your own peril in, in any competition that they're in. And they're still in three competitions because I think it suits them that everyone focuses on Union and Dortmund and they just drop enough points here and there for people to be like, oh, it's just Frankfurt. But really, they're as consistent as some of those other teams in 2023. And they're a big game team. You know, this team very much in its current state, minus Philip Kostic, who of course left for Juventus. This team won the Europa League last year and beat Barcelona in Barcelona, deservedly so. And they're strong. And I think you know, it's it's tough. I mean, it's unfortunate for them in the Europa League that they're hosting first and then traveling to Napoli. It just puts a lot of pressure on this game this week for them. I believe it's a Tuesday night game yeah. that they really have to, you know, at the very best score, win by a two-goal margin. And that's a lot of pressure against any Italian team. But they're hard to play because they have so much quality up front and Mario Goetze is in the form of his life, at least physically. Of course, young Mario Goetze with his technique was was something else entirely, but he's in that deeper role. He's doing exceptionally well. Daichi Kamada is Daichi Kamada, you know, enough said. Lindström is is doing very well as well. He's been a bit unlucky in his finishing lately. Kulumwani is probably one of the top three strikers in Europe right now. And that's just the players I can think of from the top of my head, you know? And I think any team, even Napoli, who leads Serie A, will have plenty of work cut out for them playing Frankfurt. And similar, to turn it back to the Bundesliga, Frankfurt, Leipzig, and Freiburg are all still within reach of the top spots. So just because Bayern, Union, and Dortmund are all on 43 points... We know how fast that can switch. You know, what if Bayern and Union tie a game? They just win one point next weekend. And then you have the teams behind them breathing down their neck and perhaps getting three points. There's still so much to be done. And it's not just a a narrative of who will win the German championship, the Meisterschale, and who will go down. It's There are other duels, you know, who will qualify for those top four spots for the Champions League? Who will qualify for the Europa League? Will Gladbach make a run at the Europa League spots again? Will Cologne? You know, there's still so much to play for at the top. Absolutely. And with that that real tight cluster, you know, five points separating first from sixth, we just have so many good, juicy games. I mean, it's not just Bayern versus Union, but we have, you know, Leipzig and Frankfurt (laughs) are playing each other next week, which is going to be pretty awesome. Speaking of Leipzig, they are also in Champions League action. They are hosting Manchester City on Wednesday, which sounds like a really (laughs) tough nut. But, you know, if Nottingham Forest can get a result against City, (laughs) maybe, maybe anything is possible. Leipzig, they were, they were 3-0 winners in Wolfsburg 
which I think that's a pretty creditable result. Thoughts about where Leipzig are at heading into this uh, Champions League game? Sure. And Kunku came back. He made an appearance as a substitute in the second half and immediately provided an assist for Timo Werner. So that's huge. Also psychologically to have a player of his quality as Man City. You know, I'm looking at him thinking, ooh, we've got to play in Kunku. And uh, Forsberg is kind of making the most of Danny Olmo's sad injury. He's getting more minutes and, and scoring goals. And yeah, I think that they're a strong team and they have often overperformed in the Champions League, including, of course, in 2000 and, uh, 2020 when they made it to the semi-final of the Champions League and then uh, went out against PSG very, very narrowly and unfortunately. But yeah, it's it's of course, it's a tough tie, but so is Dortmund against Chelsea and Bayern against PSG. And we saw that they were successful last week. So who knows what will happen? Yeah, I will definitely be keeping my eye on that one. We had a couple more games. These are these are teams who are still alive in the uh, Europa League alongside Union, who have that game against Ajax. But Leverkusen, they had a rough night last week, at midweek, I guess, in, in the Europa League. They let a draw with Monaco slip through their fingers after a late goal to lose 3-2. And for whatever reason, they decided to do that again, this time against Mites in the Bundesliga. You know, they're at a bit of a crossroads, I guess, considering they uh, – have to travel to Monaco and, and really push hard to get a result to keep alive in the Europa League. Any conclusions to be drawn from this game against Mites? I mean, Mites, were, I think, were well worth the result in their own way. This was the carnival derby in the Bundesliga this weekend, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, again, similar to what I said about Union v. Schalke earlier, I thought it was unwise by the coach, in this case, Xavi Alonso, to take out his best players for whatever reason. You know, Wurz and Diaby and Losek, who's been on good form, all started on the bench, uh, as did Incapier. And you had Sinkraven, Amiri, Hudson-Odoi, Asmoon start this game. And it just wasn't enough, to be blunt. You know, they all have qualities. And maybe, you know, put Diaby and Wurz next to any of those guys, they're going to score. But... I mean, Incapier has been incredibly in form as a defensive player for uh, Leverkusen, and we don't have to talk about Diaby and Wurz, but I, I don't understand why they didn't play. And it's, it's again, I think a little cocky to rest those types of players against Mainz, who on any given day can be a good team in the Bundesliga. So I think that's really what went wrong. And yeah, this was, as you said, the second time in a, in a week that they lost 3-2. And... Those players that I mentioned, uh, with the exception of Diaby, so I guess he maybe he was slightly injured or something, all of them came on in the second half, but it was too little too late. Patrick Schick also came on. Of course, in his case, perhaps he wasn't uh, fit enough yet for 90 minutes, so he came on in the 55th along with Wirtz. But yeah, I don't really know what to do with Leverkusen right now because similar to Cologne, but with very different expectations on the club, of course, both of these teams are kind of in the middle and they're too far away from the top and too far away, you know, which I guess is good for them from the bottom. So they're just kind of coasting. Yeah, we're really starting to see sort of, uh, I guess, three distinct tiers in the Bundesliga right now. There's the, you know, the top six and there is the bottom six or five, really. And then there's sort of like a, a no man's land populated with quite a few teams. Yeah. Okay. 
Freiburg, they, uh, of course, because they were so good in the group stage of the Europa League, they get to wait uh, until they have to play again. But they're, they're, they're alive in that competition. But they are back within three points of the top of the table. They beat Bochum 2-0. And I guess the way of looking ahead for them is we can talk about briefly the, the DFB-Pokal draw. Freiburg got the bonus or punishment or I don't know what. Uh, they're traveling to Bayern München. Mm-hmm. Uh, these games, of course, are not going to happen for another month and a half or so. But that's their matchup in, in the last eight of the DFB Pokal. Leipzig are going to be hosting Dortmund. Union are traveling to Frankfurt. And Nuremberg, the, uh, <laughs> the newly led by Dieter Hacking side, are going to be home to Stuttgart. Anything leap out to you from that last eight pairings in, in the, uh, the DFB Pokal? Yeah, all of them, to be honest. Yeah. We have the top six in the Bundesliga that you just mentioned, who are kind of a club to, to their own. Mm-hmm. I mean, Wolfsburg trails Frankfurt by eight points at this stage. We have the top six playing each other. And then we have the very tasty uh, Southwest game of Nuremberg v. Stuttgart. So it's great. I'm very much looking forward to this. It's a shame, I think, for a neutral observer that Freiburg is playing away in Munich because they're very strong at home. And I think it'll be very tough for them to get anything at Allianz Arena. But yeah, no, they're in all of those ties, I don't see, perhaps with that exception of, of Munich versus Freiburg, I don't see a clear favorite. I think we have some Great cup games to look forward to. Yep, yep. I think, uh, what is it, the April 4th slash 5th is when we're going to have to wait to. So mark your calendars, folks. Mm-hmm. All right, that is it for this edition of Talking Foosball Direct. It was produced, as always, by Aiden Rantoul. Lovely to have you back for a second weekend, Marie. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And it was a great end to my weekend. Uh, I started the weekend Friday night in Augsburg in the stadium. Then Saturday, there were carnival vibes with Cologne being hosted by Stuttgart. And I was at that game. And then to the end of the weekend, I get to discuss the Bundesliga with you. So it was a really, really fun time. Truly the highlight after those two uh, <laughs> Stadion Besuch. Yeah, you can find her on Twitter at Marie Schubo. You can find me there at Mr. Matt Herman. This is some next to all y'all. 